This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop shank. off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome a man of many talents, professional golfer, uh, journalist extraordinaire, we'll call him. Knows, there's a lot going on with golf in uh, Mark Baldwin's life, so we're very excited to have him on the Sub-70 Podcast. Pro, thanks for uh, taking the time today. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jason. It's great to speak with you today. Well, before we jump into your career and everything that's going on, there's 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 some stuff to talk about in the in the in the world of golf, and this will probably be out tomorrow. So we're talking about Thursday's rounds at the U.S. Open. But uh, I'm going to have you put your golf analyst hat on. A uh, couple 62s in a major championship, pretty incredible. Uh, I wouldn't say the golf course playing easy, but there's scoring opportunities, a lot more lower scores than we're used to seeing in the U.S. Open. What's sort of your take from round one, and then just maybe as a golf fan, what do you think about a softer, a little easier going uh, U.S. Open versus how the USGA normally does it? I think that yesterday was fun to watch, what little I did watch, but I know there was a strong reaction on social media, uh, and I know that most people would prefer to see the battle strongly against par at the top of the leaderboard, uh, but as was pointed out by some a friend who was there yesterday, the conditions were just absolutely perfect. And uh, it, it was, I think it was maybe difficult to anticipate how ideal those scoring conditions were. Um, so it'll be, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what kind of course correction the USGA takes today, uh, last night and this morning and what the scores look like today. But uh, I'm not sure exactly how many players broke par yesterday. I, I think it was, you know, around 30 or so, but uh, maybe yeah. a little more. But but then, no, I think it was the first time in the history of round one or two of the U.S. Open that nobody has shot in the 80s. Um, so there's there will definitely be a course correction. I, I kind of thought it was it was a fun opening round. Um, as a player, I, I think, you know, that, that eases you into the U.S. Open a little bit. I don't know that that is exactly – that's not exactly the – the culture of the U.S. Open, that's not what we're used to seeing, but there definitely will be a correction, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it's it's pretty significant this weekend. As a fan, I don't mind watching the best in the world make some birdies. I I, I, I don't know if I subscribe. I mean, yes, there's something, you know, Tom Kite went in 92 under brutal conditions and everyone's shooting 80, but I kind of like watching the best players in the world, if they're on, shooting a score. And there was some, you know, not-so-great scores too, right? I mean... I don't know. I don't know if I'm. I don't know if I'm changing my mind on the U.S. Open a little bit, but you know, we certainly don't want Goofy where, you know, they lost that green years ago, or Phil's hitting putts just to protest it because of, you know the pin position was deplorable. Um, I'm kind of fine if Fowler's on that day and there's some scores out there. Let him shoot a score a little bit, and they'll toughen it up as the week goes on. But right, I don't know. I kind of like seeing it yesterday of like this real cool iconic golf course and letting. Well, you guys are that good, right? When you're on, you're on and. If there's if the greens were holding, which they were, and there seems to be a little bit more room off the tee on that golf course, you guys are going to go low. Like this, it's just you guys play at that level. Well, that that's uh, very nice of you to say, you guys. But uh, I, I I know you're talking about the top players in the world, and I think if Ricky Fowler, it'd be interesting if you know it was a different player who was 
like at the very top of the board. Like if Eric Cole had a shot 62 yesterday, um, would we be having the same conversation? It's, it's kind of joyful to watch Ricky come back and after he's what he's been through in the last couple of years and be at the top of the board and create all sorts of possibilities. But, you know, as, as so many writers uh, and observers on the ground pointed out, the fairways are, are larger than typical U.S. Open fairways. And because they're patchy, they're supposed to bound in different directions and be more difficult to, you know, to, uh, basically reduce the size of them. But it wasn't really the case yesterday. And that's largely why you, you didn't see a whole bunch of bounding shots into greens, even, you know, even shots from the rough, it was, it wasn't like you had to, you know, you really had to like reasonableize, you had to land them 40 yards short of the green or whatever. Um, so yeah, it, it's certainly going to be an interesting U.S. Open, but I thought it was uh, a fun opening round and, you know, guys may not make much more progress against par if they really overcorrect. Have you played LACC before? I did. I played it in college. Um, we played it prior to competing in USC's event one year, and it was just, it was just an absolute blast. It was one of my favorite golf courses we played in college. And it looks like Gil Hans, you know, nailed the redo. Like, it looks fantastic, right? Like, mm-hmm. how they kind of brought it back to the original ideas, a little bit more room off the tee, a little bit more, oh, I think they were saying before, it kind of got one-dimensional, right? Really heavily tree-lined. Uh, now, boy, there's some variety of how you can play it based on the conditions. I thought, I thought on TV it presented beautifully after what they did to it. Yeah, oh, completely. And um, yeah, I just, I, I mostly remember, it, you know, just the, it was, it was kind of Pine Valley like in a way without all the trees. And um, someone described it as kind of Pine Valley meets Augusta. And it certainly has that feel with like a little bit of a Australian, um, yeah. you know, sort of addition. But all I remember really from college mainly was that our team was just trying to look over the, the fence at the Playboy Mansion and all we could see was a bunch of peacocks <laughs> in the, the back cage. That you did not sneak into the grotto, unfortunately. Well, no, we, we did not get much, any sort of glimpse beyond the zoo. Damn. Well, hey, never say never. Uh was going to ask you, too, big news on the, 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 the LIV PGA Tour merger. Uh as a player, thoughts on that? I didn't see this one coming, although eventually you could see it coming, but I didn't see it coming this fast, especially with Jay Monahan still at the helm and Greg Norman not being re- you know, uh, removed uh, with all the back and forth, whatnot. Uh, wow, lots of layers to untuck on this one. Uh, put your journalism hand on this one. What do, you, what do you sort of see on this scenario? It, it's wild. I mean, what a wild week in golf. Really last week and a half, I guess. But yeah, I mean, you didn't see it. I don't think anybody could have possibly predicted it. And when you first read about it, you were just waiting for the little asterisks that this was originally taken from the onion. Um, yes, it, it is. It is just it, a, a really it's just stunning. And I don't, I don't know what kind of outcome can be really be in the future that you know that doesn't have. Saudi Arabia as just an incredibly large player in the game, whether you want to say that they, you know, their stake is uh, an ownership stake or not. The the outcomes in the future, I mean, you just, if this deal doesn't go through yesterday, it was announced the DOJ 
is now looking into right. the antitrust side of this. And if the deal falls apart, it doesn't go through for whatever reason. I mean, the, the, the executive team's cards in the PGA tour are now on the table and everyone's going to be looking to get paid. And PIF has a lot more money to put into golf. I mean, I just got to think that if it doesn't go through a lot, we're going to see another sort of exodus from the PGA tour. So, you know, the, the, the scenarios that come out of this, I, I don't think, you know, the PGA Tour is a, a standalone organization anymore without Saudi involvement, regardless of how it ends up going. What, what, were your, what are your takes on it? How does, I don't know how Jay keeps his job. I, 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 I don't know how you can sit on that platform, especially like bringing the 9-11 families in. And like, you got to die on that hill at that point. Right? Even if you thought it was best for the merger to happen, you might just have to, he's got enough money. I would have just removed myself and said, there's got to be someone else who can do this deal. Mm -hmm. From a leadership standpoint, I don't understand how he stays. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you hung McElroy and Tiger and Ricky and all those guys, Justin Thomas, they didn't take the cash and you hung them out to dry. Mm-hmm. Right at the end of the day, so I don't know how this all pans out. I, I just can't imagine how Jay Monahan keeps his job for the next year. Right? Yeah, you've lost credibility at this point with the players, right? If it's a if you're supposed to be working for the players, I don't know how you don't have that conversation ahead of time. Why and fight it then make a deal if they're willing to throw that much money in and you're and you're you're looking at the future of golf as a global brand. More money for the players. Your your coffers are full to go for the future. How do you not take that call on the front end, which he refused to do, and now all of a sudden you're backpedaling on everything you said? Mm-hmm. So I, I thought it was very short-sighted on the PGA Tour's part, and I turned out to be right in, in, in the sense that you got to at least listen to that conversation. Remember at first he said, I'm not even talking to you guys. We're the PGA Tour. And boy, I mean, I think they, I think they were going to have problems um, – trying to keep sponsors, right? Because now is my event elevated? Is it not elevated? If it's not elevated, what's it look like? Why am I paying the money for this? I think there was some parts of Live that were pretty entertaining. And I think the major championships showed that these guys aren't washed up and they're done and it's a has-been tour. And, uh, and they're going after a younger demographic that you know went out to those events and they had a damn good time. That event in Australia was huge, mm-hmm. right? And as a golf fan, you know, even if Phil was playing bad, I still kind of want to see Phil out there, right? So I get the no-cut thing and some of those aspects of it. Not every event, but I can see why some people found the pace of it, the shotgun start, um, appealing. Mm-hmm. And I think they 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 were – this merger was probably going to happen. But if I was Hideki Matsuyama, I wouldn't be real thrilled right now because I, I don't know how they didn't take the money on the front end. I just – you could probably play in the majors. I can't imagine the majors were going to take you off. Your Hideki Matsuyama really is the U.S. Open or Open Championship not going to allow you in. And boy, four hundred or three hundred million, whatever they offer to Mark, boy, that's a lot of money on the dotted line to not take. And I would love to know what the philosophy was why he didn't take it. Mm. And now all of a sudden, well, everything we're fighting against now we've joined up. Mm-hmm. And how do you repay Hideki three hundred million? Right. Yeah, how, how it, do you put that back in the bottle? Right. Yeah, it's it's difficult to see how those pieces get put back together. I mean, if you read Michael Bamberger's last book, he he mentions how in the early days when Lev was just kind of uh, a whisper on the wind, 
he spoke to Greg Norman and Norman was only talking about Hideki and getting into the Japanese market and how much that would mean to the tour. Mm -hmm. And that was the first player he was going after, um, which, which I thought was interesting, you know, was, it, it doesn't seem like it's possible, obviously that the ideas early on were aligned between Norman, between Yasser, between the PIF. And now there's, when you look at the, the game that could have potentially been played as, live as a Trojan horse for Piff to get into the PGA tour where they wouldn't, would have never been allowed before. That's a very interesting game of 3d chess that could have been played and maybe somewhere along the line, the interests diverted, but yeah, I mean, to your point, I think those underserved markets, I mean, I played one Australian open and the crowd was unbelievable. The golf courses are, are so good. Um, Mm -hmm. so much fun and and the crowd was really knowledgeable you know and and they were so starved so that was that was good to see and when when you think about okay you know bring bring golf to the corners of the world that are underserved that's that's a that's a lovely idea um but this whole this whole idea of how the PGA tour is going to change obviously like Jimmy Dunn is a Notre Dame guy has, has been mentioned kind of just kind of constantly among this whole process. And he's also one of the, or the person who Bobby Axelrod was based on in the show billions. And so you just, you just think like how there has to be just some deep strategy underlying all of this on the PGA tours part. You'd like, you, you hope there is, but really at the end of the day on the surface, it just seems like there was just indications that the sponsors weren't going to be there for that long at that, that commitment level. And they, you know, when he talks about coming to the table from a place of strength, it means that for maybe next year, they were solid and their financial commitments were there, but they were, were they the year after, you know, so in the immediate moment right. they are, but how, what does that mean two years out or five years out? Um, so yeah, it's, there's just there's more questions than answers at this point, but the players still feel betrayed and, and certainly mentioned that this week in their press conferences. Uh, yeah, it's to, to see to see where it goes is is not uh, there's no there's no real crystal ball with this one. There's just a lot of moving parts, but it would be interesting to see. I mean, the the voice that's largely missing from this is the most important one from a player's standpoint. I mean, where is, where is Tiger? Seemingly he'd be behind the scenes in all of these, you know, negotiations once this information came out uh, or talking to players or, ha you know, have a major stake, but he it's, he's been, he's been largely mum for, uh, in the public's standpoint. Isn't that interesting that it's the, the radio silence might be deafening? Yes. Yes. What do you make of that, Jason? I don't know enough information on it. I mean, I can't imagine how he doesn't have because I don't think any of the players, even Tiger, were involved in this negotiation. So I'd have to imagine if you're Tiger Woods and you stood up for the PGA Tour and you talked a bunch of guys out from going to live, and you're not even involved at that table with Mr. Dunn and that group. I don't know, man. He turned down a billion dollars or eight hundred million. Yeah, um, I'd be questioning a few things from a leadership standpoint. I'll tell you that much. You know? Right, and and maybe they hold make them whole by giving them some equity in this new partnership, and they're going to have to. But I mean, there's 
from a from a media standpoint, from a branding standpoint, it does appear from the outside at least they were left. He was left hanging out to dry. They had him be the spokesperson along with Rory, and then all of a sudden, kaboom, we won Adia. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be real thrilled. Right. Yes, Sally Jenkins wrote. Sally Jenkins wrote an interesting column yesterday in the Washington Post, which um, the underlying sentiment of it was spot on. I think it's unrealistic if you if you know kind of professional golfers' mentality. It was very unrealistic, but the the idea was like players got cut out of all of this, and it was you know four guys in uh, a, a room with cigar smoke you know, obstructing their, their clarity. And they decided the future of, of golf in these clandestine meetings and the players were cut out. This is supposed to be a player's tour. I mean, live exactly. is supposed to be player forward, right? I mean, that if, if you could say one thing about the players feel, feel heard out there, according to a, a lot of their discussions, caddies did as well. Um, you know, Norman made sure of that. That was kind of his idea of going back to the 90s. Um, but there are no players in this discussion. It's just like, yeah, you know, don't worry, guys. We'll take care of you. Trust us. Wink, wink. And, and Sally's call, column yesterday was how, regardless of, I mean, regardless of how you feel about Saudi money and golf, that right there is enough for players to get together and say, you know, we, we should have a voice in this. We shouldn't just trust the people who have kind of hung us out to dry to this point and have obviously not been entirely forthright. And we should get together and see what a player run tour would actually look like where we really would have a voice. And, you, you know, was Phil right? Was Phil not right? Uh, Phil was right about some things. The way he went about it, I think you could argue was, he got involved with the wrong people with the right idea. But, you know, what we know now about Jay, what we know now about the executive team, discounting the ideas of players um, makes his original idea and his, you know, grievances have more merit. Um, 100%. I mean, I think, and, and you probably, without, without saying players' names, I've heard these same grievances off the record from friends of mine on tour before the Phil stuff. Mm -hmm. This is, I mean, you've been out there. This is common sort of sentiment at some level, don't you think? For sure. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, I think the, the idea of the pack, you know, being something substantive is, is of the past, you know, I don't know that anybody, anybody who's really in an advisory role as a player feels like they, you know, they really have a voice. Um, that That's kind of all they feel like they are. Uh, they relay information and maybe, you know, somewhat of an advisory role, but when it comes to sort of any substantive decision, their, you know, actual positions are left by the wayside in favor of what is more, the most profitable. And that is certainly the theme of this is money wins out. And these you know, few people who are in a room to decide the future of golf, we don't know what they carved out for themselves. You know, Jay's position. Oh, I'm sure it's pretty good. Yeah, Jay's position as CEO has just gotten significantly larger and more expanded. Uh, You know, 
what does it mean for Jimmy Dunn and, and for um, the antitrust lawyer who was in the, those negotiations? What, what does their position on the board look like and what does that come with? You know, all, all of these things are really behind, not behind closed doors, not just behind closed doors, but very opaque to even the people who really need to know and whose futures depend on it. So just taking everyone at their word now, I mean, nobody, nobody can do that anymore. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it all unfolds, that's for sure. But I still think there's some vindication from Phil Mickelson, right? I mean, I agree there, the, from a PR standpoint, probably wasn't the best way of going about it. But boy, he sure looks better today than he did a year and a half ago or whenever the, the, the shit show was. He just does. Yeah, So does Greg Norman at some level. You can see he feels... Greg finally got what he wanted. Mm -hmm. Well, he he did, assuming that Liv continues to exist. Yes. I mean, to the the earlier point I made about diverging diverging visions, if the idea really is to fold Liv, which doesn't really make sense, regardless of whether it comes under the PGA Tour umbrella or not, um, but if that is kind of the compromise that was made and to eliminate a competitor, as, as Jay said, I think, I think Greg doesn't get out of this what he wants. I don't, you know, for him, I don't think it really was about money. I think it was about being a major voice, having a, a huge role in golf, you know, and certainly he's got a big ego and he wanted strokes, right? Um, he wanted a seat at the table as well. And, and he wants to do right by players. Um, I think it was very player forward from that perspective. Uh, so if, if he doesn't, you know, if Liv doesn't continue to survive, he may be one of like I, going, getting back to Jenkins column from yesterday. I, I mean, I think there's two players or one player and one former player that could probably galvanize more players in to create a new competitor out of this. And it would be Tiger and it would be Norman if he's left by the wayside in all of this. Um, you know, get, but but what happens if this happens? What happens if their live goes away, but the PGA Tour turns into more of a live around the world limited events, as he envisioned twenty five years ago? So what happens if yes, live goes away, but does he still get vindicated if the PGA Tour has more of that live schedule or you know PGA Tour Plus or Premium, whatever you want to call the top seventy guys, mm-hmm. right? If it looks more live like. Mm-hmm. Is he still vindicated because there's events in Singapore and there's events in Australia and there's events in Europe? You know what I mean? Like it turns into that, which he always dreamed of, of taking, you know, Jumbo Ozaki, the guys from all these major tours and having one kind of world tour of the best of the best. I mean, that's kind of what it, you know, they kind of gave the World Golf Championships for that. But now does it fully come to fruition? Even if it's under the PJ Tour banner, does he still sort of get vindicated that he was right, that there will be this very limited, exclusive, for lack of a better word, premium PGA Tour, even if Liv dies, hypothetically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's certainly more validation to his ideas and to everything that he has put into to Liv and to, you know, all, all of the idea, all of the hopes in changing golf. But look at how forward facing he is look i mean look he's in front of the camera all the time glad handing you know uh just being the face i mean he he is 
for all, he's got a lot of bravado and um, he's the kind of guy that I think wants to, to be there. Right. Like ultimately if, if that happened, but they say, okay, thanks, Greg, um, you know, time for you to go off into the sunset. I don't think that's going to be acceptable to him. I agree with you there. There is a, he wants to be, I mean, he looked very happy being the face of live golf and seeing the fans and being out there out front. Right. I mean, he wasn't in the background by any sense of imagination. And that's pro. It's going to be fascinating to watch just to see how this unfolds. So, oh, it's, um, it really is. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be wild. Um, but I want to talk to you about about your golf game um, as well. Nice win earlier this year. Oh, you thank that you. Field on fire, son. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. a good one. Um, Southern Cal Open. Would you win by like 114 shots or something? Right? What was it, like seven or eight? I mean, the field had you <laughs> pretty was, much. Yeah. Uh, Went old school tiger on him. So, uh, would you find a little bit on that week? Uh, pretty strong field, nice win. Like it's a little momentum builder there. Like, well done. Yeah, no, it was it was incredible, and I, I won by seven and beat third place by ten. And it was it was just one of those incredible golf experiences where everything is. Easy. I mean, the shots are going where you want them. When they don't, you follow it up with an exceptional shot, and you can do no wrong. And the putts are going in. It's, they're very. Those experiences are very rare. Uh, so I, I cherish every moment, and I, I really felt like it, it has given me kind of new life and to to see what's what is possible at this stage of my career. That that I actually am getting better. And that the, I think the future can still be very bright for me, despite, you know, all of the, the young guns coming out of PGA Tour U and, and everything that a, a pro kind of what most would consider at the tail end of, of their uh, peak years could still thrive. Um, and I, I think that it showed me a lot of possibilities. Did you feel that earlier in the week, too, like you were just on that week? Like, did it, was it just like a sense of calm and like not working on much? Like you just were ready to go when the bell started round one. Like, could you just sort of feel it was coming? I played really well in the practice round, but I also played with a bunch of public golfers. One of them had a chipper and, and I was giving him lessons on how not to stab the chipper into the ground. Um, <laughs> like a, you know, a chopstick in, into a sirloin. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, so yes, I, I, I knew that that I was playing well, but I didn't know what that translated to. I, I don't, I didn't know if that meant I was going to, okay. Cause I hadn't played a, a tournament in quite a while. So I didn't know if that meant I was, you know, I was going to go shoot three under or one under or eight under, but I, I knew that there was going to be a lot of good shots available. Well, maybe it was the chipper that inspired you. You just saw that, you know, once you got the guy fixed, he's rolling it up. There was a good mental image in your head, you know, positive vibes from the uh, high handicap playing the old double-sided chipper. Trying to get her up and down, right? Hey, whatever inspires you. Well, yeah. To be fair, I think I built some credit up with the golf gods for those lessons. Yes. Did did we get the stabbing motion out of there by the end? Did we get him just to make a little putting stroke and kind of get the thing, you know, up in the air and rolling like a putt? It got shallower uh, as the round went on. Okay. But as you know, as you know, it's, it's not really what you do. Uh, in on the range or in practice or when you you have the watchful eyes of a coach it's what happens the next day yeah well let's hope this man is uh a little bit more efficient with the uh with the with the chipper getting the ball up and down a little bit more well it's a hell of a week um 
What's the plans in for the future of this year? Are you going to Q school? Like, what's it sort of looking like, you know, from that standpoint? Yeah, I will definitely go to Q school at the end of the year. Uh, I haven't. I don't think there's any changes to Q school, but they, as, as far as I know, the price has been reduced from last year, and now there's spots, five spots directly on the PGA Tour. So Q school is returning to glory, which is, you know, there's some some version of its glorious past, which is exciting. But leading up to that, it will be kind of preparation. Uh, I'm very hopeful that I'll play in the CUDA this year, whether it be from a sponsor invite or I Monday qualify in again. That That's kind of what my next real milestone. So I'm playing a few events leading up to that and just hoping to peak around that time. And then my next challenge is to have my game in top form for Q school. Uh, and this is kind of goes back to this whole, you know, merger. Have you heard anything of like how this all works now? Like where's the corn Ferry tour going to line up versus the DP world tour versus live having a stake in the Asian tour? Like how does this then funnel forward of obviously your goal is to make what's called the PGA tour, the highest level PGA tour. Like how is this funnel system now going to work inwards? Yeah, that's, that's a, an incredible question. And I talked to a player who's very high up on the points list on Corn Ferry Tour, and he was just like, I don't, I don't know what this means. What does this mean for me? He hopes that he's going to have full status on the PGA Tour next year. Uh, obviously, there's still plenty of season to go on Corn Ferry, but he's in prime position. So that's, yeah, that's the big question. What does this mean for the developmental ranks? What does this mean for the development system? If you look at, you know, for – for all of the, the live advocates out there and the, you know, the live, so-called live bots, right. Uh, criticizing the PGA tour left and right. There is no, there's no real development system for live. I mean, they released a plan for Q school. That was basically like, if you're in the top, you know, 150 in the world, okay, give it a shot. You know, you can, you can have a chance, but that's right. not, that's not realistic for anybody who's trying to make it in the game. So, so there was, there's, it's a, it was a closed shop and the PGA tour for, you know, all you can critique it for, there's still a strong pathway with exceptional play to become, you know, a, a, a player who can get into the top events. It's still a meritocracy. So what does this, what does all this mean for the rising players? And what does this mean for corn Ferry tour? Uh, and if, if, Money wins out in the end, and if, uh, you know, the PIF creates some sort of system that maybe looks a lot more live than it does um, Corn Ferry Tour or non-elevated events, and they try to, to squeeze money out of it um, to recoup investment, it could be dire for the lower ranks. Um, and I think that could be true of team golf as well i mean they're not inviting you know a team qualifiers out on the live which would be an exceptional format i mean if you had a monday qualifier every week for the team you could show up with your team and qualify and get into a, a life-changing event that would be must watch entertainment 100%. that would be so much yeah yeah if you guys all get in now you get a spot or, or two spots available each week that'd right be wild that would be. Um, so again, you know, it's 
it's where what is the direction i don't I, I, there's certainly there's very little indication at the top so there's what falls the pieces that fall into place last are always at the you know more towards the bottom and more more often than not they kind of have to pick up the crumbs that are left so uh, i i fear for that and for the the players you know who are waiting for their break kind of in the mid levels of the corn ferry tour, uh, for, let alone the Canadian what, Latin America, what which now will become one tour. That's one. Right. And then my question, I mean, to me too, on the PGA tour, there could almost be two PGA tours, right? The, the guys playing, let's just the John Deere classic. And then the guys playing in these elevated events, right? Then does Corn Ferry tour if they want to keep the DP World Tour open? Does Corn Ferry feed DP? Then you go to the DP World Tour to get to the first level of PGA Tour. Then you have to work your way up from the PGA Tour to the top seventy. Mm. I mean, is that how it's going to go? Right. How do you have the Corn Ferry Tour and the DP World Tour at the same time? Mm-hmm. Unless there's a big enough market in Europe for sponsors to have that. But then, what's the number two tour? Is it Corn Ferry or is it DP? And how does that all work out? That's that's the part to me. It's you know, and then if you take you know Latin America combining with Canada, now you almost have five layers. Where, you know, where how do they categorize all of those? Where do they fall? Do they exactly? Is it is it possible that you know DP expands to engulf Corn Ferry and then it becomes kind of a, a, a transatlantic tour that feeds the, the PGA Tour and then the top players feed. Yeah, the team aspect of it, something like that. I mean, that's very well, probable. which could be better, right? Because then, if you combine Corn Ferry and DP World Tour, there would at least be more money for the players, as you well know. You can finish, you know, fiftieth on the money list on the Corn Ferry Tour, and it's it's a tough living. Oh you know, yeah, yeah. That, that's a tough one. Yeah. So, do the is that a good thing then, where maybe they do start to make it where because the money's better on the DP World Tour if they did some sort of a combination then it's a viable place to actually make a good living playing professional golf versus, you know, uh, well, you know, I'll explain this one to you. Like it's, it's hard out in the D on the corn Ferry tour to, you know, unless you're just there for one or two years and make it to the PGA tour. It's all, that's tough. So do they try to make that a more realistic place for guys to play? Then that feeds up to the PGA tour. I, I don't know. I could see something like that happening mm-hmm. where they just get combined mm-hmm. with a lot more opportunities for those players. Yeah, World ranking points. Then you're not having two tours competing at that sort of level, because I don't know going forward what's the better tour, Corn Ferry or DP World, with the way it's going. I, I don't know. Sure, There's, I don't have a strong argument. I guess maybe DP World Tour now, but how long does that last for? So I don't know. It's going to be hopefully in the end for guys like you, it's better. Meaning there's more money in the game. So even if you are playing not on the PJ Tour, if they combine those, you can still make a realistic really nice living as a professional golfer versus holding on for dear life, trying to get to that next level. I would, I mean, for the guy, you know, guy, I'm, I'm, I have this lens cause I'm friends with the players, right? So I'd rather see you be able to go out there and do really well and not have to think about, can I do this again? If I'm 60th on the money list, which is a strong year and you're, and you're fully exempt the next year on the corn Ferry tour. And you're in, but if you add it all up, it's like, wow, I'm hardly making anything. I don't know how fair that seems to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agree. And so I'd like to see that change. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally agree. Anything. I mean, that's the optimistic perspective and outlook is is that the money at the in the developmental ranks improves. I mean, and it has in 
without all of this, the Corn Ferry Tour purses finally were bumped this year. You know, oh, right. which, which was long, long overdue, and it had absolutely nothing to do with Liv's existence. Um, but you know, it, at least those purses are. To, it went from seven hundred, seven fifty to a million. Um, the the right. final, the final, formerly finals events are one and a half this year. So guys can make a living. I mean, if you finish fiftieth, you can finally turn a profit, you know, decent profit. I mean, you're not going to get. Yes, where five years ago you couldn't. But you, yeah, I mean, when uh, even three years ago, you know, you really couldn't. And so that those are those are positive steps. Um, but yeah, I mean, who, who knows what happens? That's again, that's going to be an afterthought. I always find it interesting as well from the players. Like, when did you know you were good enough to to go play professional golf as a touring pro, not a club pro, but a touring pro? Like, was there a couple moments or a moment that hit you where it's like, yeah, I, I'm going to give this a shot and I'm good enough to do this? I really didn't know, Jason. I shot some really low scores in college. Um, shot the lowest score in Notre Dame history, and. I was just improving. I mean, I re- I came in my freshman year at Notre Dame, played well, but like not, you know, not highly ranked well. And then I changed my entire technique around. I used to have a very strong grip growing up. It was just like a homemade Paul Azinger grip. And I made a mistake and hit a snap hook that cost my team our conference title. And we decided to make a drastic change. And I weakened my grip and to, to make the change faster, I over-exaggerated it and played, went from a Paul Azinger grip to as weak a grip as, you know, you can basically put, set your left hand on the club and, um, you know, see, almost see an open palm. So I couldn't keep it on the planet my sophomore year and even in the beginning of my junior year. And then all of a sudden something clicked and I just got gradually better until I was, I was like one of the top 50 players in the country my senior year. And I thought, well, this will be fun. This, this, this is worth giving a shot. But I remember sitting in a meeting, a sponsor meeting and, and, at, you know, asking for some seed money to get going. And I, I said, well, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it next year. Or I'm going to make it in five years. I might still be at this when I'm 30, but I, I had played with a, a vet in a state open who, had continued playing like late into his thirties played all around the world. And he was just so jaded and just real had a very pessimistic outlook on everything. And I said, I don't want to, I don't want to end up there, but I, I had no idea um, then how long it would take. And I had no idea, no intention to become the journeyman that I've become. Is your grip still that weak? No, no, it's, it's. I would say just. No, no, we got, I would say it's like just slightly strong, stronger than neutral now. Okay, we got. Yeah, you, you figured it out, then went back to the other. Okay, I was yeah. you probably changed it at some point. You, you, you played over all over the world, right? You, 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 all these tours from PGA Tour to European or uh, to Asia, right? Over Japanese Tour, all all the stuff. What Corn Ferry Tour, uh, all of it. What's the biggest difference you see when you play like a PGA Tour event versus? corn fairy tour event or an event over in Asia? Like, is it closer than people think, or is the gap pretty wide from a talent standpoint, or is it just a smidgen? I, I mean, I think the depth is something that's different. So like if you go play in Asia, uh, you really, really any event that's around Asia, the top players are exceptional. And 
the close, you know, the closer you get to the cut, the less depth there is. And certainly at the bottom, you, you know, you get players who uh, are representing their countries and, and have, and that happens over here too, but they get, you know, some sort of national exemption into an event and they just, they don't even really have a prayer of breaking 80. And I mean, so I just, I think the closer you get to the top, the fewer consecutive mistakes you see out of players and like on the PGA tour on any given week, anybody has a chance to win. And it feels like that's the case on corn Ferry now too. It's just the really people, most players that win can come out of nowhere. They can be, you know, 120th on the points list. And then all of a sudden they have their week and they win. Um, and I just think the depth has grown so tremendously, but you, there's just fewer mistakes the closer you get to the top. And I mean, players understand their own personal games. They just have a higher golf IQ as it pertains to their own games. And you don't just see, you don't see two consecutive mistakes the closer you get to the top. That's what, so the talent's kind of the same. It's just, they don't compound anything. They just know how to get that ball in the hole and it's just more efficient essentially. That's part of it. I don't know. I don't know if it's talent. I mean, it, just the work ethic at the top and is getting back to my, uh, our conversation earlier about, you know, the, the future of golf and the news and everything. The, there's so much, um, the, the grind at the top is, I think, significant. And the idea that players could, would get together now and say, you know, we weren't involved in these negotiations. We're demanding that we create a, our, we're going to create our own tour. We're going to get sponsors and we're going to do it our way. And we want to make the decisions. And I just think what is required to be a top professional golfer now is so all encompassing. It, it is, it is such a minutia based data driven endeavor, as well as, you know, exceptional talent. And then an unbelievably methodical amount of practice that most players just don't have the energy to go do something like that, let alone the interest. Um, it, it really, the, the, the work ethic at the, on the corn Ferry tour is, is unbelievable. I mean, guys are, you'll, you'll just see them there morning to tonight. And I mean, and people have figured out too, this was, this has been a big difference. The longer I played, I've noticed the importance of recovery and rest. And so you see a lot of, you know, you see a lot of work early in the week, the closer you get to a tournament, the, the more people are, more players are gathering their energy and, and um, you know, just resting, but it's just such an all encompassing endeavor. And so I, I just think, yeah, there really isn't much room for much else if you're going to be a top player right now. Yeah, the commitment. I always say like the the behind the stuff you don't see is staggering. You know, from the players I got to be friendly with of how much work it takes. Right. I mean, how much work it takes from even when you're off, you're working, and and the the the, the commitment of it. It's crazy. Yeah. Right. And the traveling and it wears on you. It's hard on family stuff. Like it's. It, there's some sacrifices, you know, the PGA Tour guys, they, they make. You know, no, they're well-paid, they're well-compensated, but it's it's a tough life, too, you know. Um, 
No, it's interesting just to kind of see, you know, what, what, what does it make, you know, what happens to make somebody tick at that level to put that level of commitment, you know, of, for, especially the guys who play for like, you know, take like a Brian Gay who's been out there for like, you know, 25 years. That's incredible. Right, of how good he was for that long. And he's got a, you know, it's not like a household name for everybody, but I love players like that where it's like, can you imagine the commitment at 45 years old not being the longest guy in the world and he's still out there winning and competing? Like what that takes behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, that's your whole life. It's your whole right? life. For, to be great for that long. It's from when you wake up in the morning, all the decisions you make, you know, right out, right out of bed, what you're putting in your body what you're spending your energy on, you know, who you're working out in the gym with. I mean, you, you mentioned Brian Gay, but, you know, think about journeymen like Scott Gachetsky, right? I mean, play, you know, yeah. guys who have put in the work for so long for, and I mean, you know, Scott is a wonderful player and, and kind of amazing that he continues to improve. But, like, there is not a ton of validation uh, through the years, right? There's just a lot more losses than wins. And for the amount of sweat equity that you are putting in, if you put that into a, most other professions, you, you'd make more money. You know, you'd get further. Yeah. If you're at the top of your profession, um, you know, you're one of the top, let's say, six or five or 600 in your profession, you would do better than you do playing professional golf. The, the, the money – in kind of the mid hundreds falls off precipitously um, for the amount of sweat equity that you have to put in. So, but yet it's still there. Scott won this year again, right? So you, so it's like, you know, he can still do it, right? right? You can know he still is that good. Of course. Right. Right. And then yeah. that's, that's what you hang on to is the, that you can continue to improve that you can wake up every day and get better. And you still have a chance to achieve something monumental that you've dreamed about forever. Yep. And he's winning in his 40s against kids half his age. It's pretty impressive. Exactly. I was going to ask you, too, that when he played in the AT&T, he got to play with Peter Jacobson. Fluff was on the bag. Monday Q Ryan. Uh, gosh, what a great guy, man. Like, he's helped us so much. Like, Ryan French is awesome. For you people listening don't know Ryan French, he's Monday Q Info on Twitter. Follow it. It's a great follow. All these insights, stories, interesting stuff. If you love golf, it's a great story. And I know you're tight with Ryan as well. But what a group. Like you got Huey Lewis following you around. You got Steve Young. You're playing with Jake. You're out at Monterey Peninsula. And you're playing well. Like, that's got to be a hell of a week. And what was it like to play with Jake and watch him and Fluff still do the thing? And Fluff's still out there, you know, caddying away at God knows, you know, how many years. Like, that just had to be such a fun week. Oh, it was, it was magic. It was one of the greatest weeks of my life. And to have those people around, just so much wisdom, not just with, obviously, with Jake and who made the week all about me. It was his final go-around at Pebble Beach, his final go-around in a competitive tournament. And he just did everything he could to cheer me on rather than make it kind of a celebration of him and his career, which you know, in what it really should have been, what, what I would have expected it to be. Um, it just spoke to what an incredible human be- being Jake is. And Fluff was the king of one-liners. He was, he didn't speak much, but, but when he did, you listened and it was powerful. 
And then to have Steve Young and, you know, talk about backing up Montana and the grind and he's so analytical and you, it's amazing how your, like his ideas outside of golf translated to what he was doing on the golf course. So every single shot he would need to fully analyze and he'd need to bring Jake in. He'd need to bring me and he'd need to ask questions about why something worked, why something didn't work. What if I tried you know, this next time? Uh, all of these, these very subtle, important questions um, or they were important to him. It was way too much information, way too like significantly more information that you would ever want. Certainly at a, a golf tournament, but you can see why, he became so successful. He was, he's a, such a student of sport and he spent those, those, all that time absorbing every single piece of information he could from Montana. Uh, and you know, that, that just, when he finally broke out, he had all of that internalized and, and, and ready and, and didn't, you know, it's, it's kind of late for him to be like an exceptional golfer, but he, is determined to get better. And uh, that, that's like the beauty of the game. And, and he represented them. And Huey Lewis there, uh, it was so funny because Ben Rector, who filled in for Huey Lewis, um, you know, Ben's like a billboard chopping or topping musician. And Ben had started his career in Huey Lewis cover band. Really? And he was so, oh, ner- that's wild. He was so nervous to talk to Huey. And after the morning of the third round, Ben and I were walking. I was, we were talking about his new songs that he had released. And I asked him whether he had talked to Huey about, about music. And he was like, man, he's like, I just, I can't, I can't be the one to start that conversation. He's got to bring it up. He's one of my heroes. You know, I'm like so nervous to talk to him about music. Um, and he was, he was just so genuine uh, and, and geeking out and starstruck which was so cool. I mean, it would have been like, you know, me, me playing with a uh, tiger or something, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. J- just, just an incredible guy. So smart, a really good golfer. Um, and just like, a mu- I mean, he is a musical genius, but we had this moment on the back of the 14th tee at spyglass where Steve and we were all back there and these, residents of one of the houses on the back of the tee came out with guitars for for jake and for uh, ben and steve and ben had had a closest to the pin contest on the previous hole and ben had won and first he and jake played this little bluesy riff that was kind of cool but then steve asked for a serenade from ben and ben improvised this when there was probably like you know 10 or 12 people around the sun was coming through the trees and it was idyllic and there was dogs running around and he just played this like beautiful little step down romantic melody and he just made this hilariously funny uh, these hilariously funny lyrics that had steve in stitches and it was you couldn't believe you were in a pga tour event you know it was the the coolest most relaxed moment on a golf course in a high stress what should have been a high stress situation i've ever been a part of um, and it was surreal. It was an amazing, magical experience. I've been fortunate enough to be friends with Kenton Bryant, who's you know out of Nashville and gone on golf trips. And there is a different level when they grab an acoustic guitar and sit around and play. 
versus somebody who's just really good at guitar and can kind of sing, right? Isn't it amazing how it's like watching a pro golfer hit a golf ball when you're at that level, they just make it look effortless. Don't they? You just give them an acoustic guitar and say, go do it. And it's just kaboom. There's a, there's a massive talent difference of how truly good a professional recording touring artist is. And you're like, okay, that's why this gentleman makes albums. That's why he tours. That's why they do what they do. It's that good. It's so much fun to watch that up close, isn't it? Oh, unbelievable. It's, you know, to your point, it, it's the difference between a scratch player and a professional golfer. It's a, it's a huge difference, monumental difference. Yes. But I suspect that if you had, a, you know, Ben's his first instrument, his piano, I, I suspect if you had given him any instrument, you know, give him a tuba, he would have made it work. He's that, he's that level of musical genius. Um, and I was thinking yeah, about this. I was thinking about this yesterday. Watch. I have a friend who um, he is a very, very prominent music supervisor in Hollywood, and, and he went to watch the U.S. Open yesterday. And he played Division One college golf, and he hasn't been to, to watch professional golf in a long time. And you know, he was he was just geeking out. He followed Rory the whole time, and he's he's like, man, this is like. You know, it's like watching the greatest guitar player in the world. It's like watching, you know, Clapton in his prime or Hendrix or like, you know, Tim Reynolds. It's, it's just transcendent. Um, and I thought, I thought, man, it would be really cool with all this discussion about whether, whether music belongs on the golf course to get your perfect U.S. Open playlist. I need to hear, I need to hear this when you're done. It's, yeah, well, it is. It's, it's fun to watch anybody who does something at an elite level. Right, I mean, really elite. You know, I could watch somebody shoot skeet with a shotgun and just go, "My God, how do you you know do that that quick?" Right, like anything that somebody does elite, or they're one of the best in the world at it. It's you know, if you can't learn something from watching that, you know, there's something wrong with you of watching anybody who does something that's special like that. It's it's fun to do it. Right. A uh, couple more here. I was going to ask it. You know, uh, on the on the media side of stuff, is there one or is there like a story? Let's say. That from the writing that you've done that has kind of been the most important to you or most interesting or anything like that from, you know, I know you're, you're doing both sides of the coin. You're playing professional golf and you're also doing some stuff with media. Is there one that kind of just stands out that's just like, wow, that was cool to cover? Or, I didn't see that angle coming or, you know, something that we should kind of look at of the work that you've done. The nice thing, getting back to you mentioning Ryan French earlier, is he just says, whatever you want to write, write. Whenever you feel inspired or your story is really touching to you, write it. So any, anything that I've written has been something that's been important to me and, and I don't have to, you know, write columns or write about anything that I don't, I'm not really invested in. And that it helps me a lot. These profile pieces that I've done really in the last week, I, I did Austin Truslow and Jesse Shooty, but part of what I love about writing is it allows me to exercise kind of my curiosity and, and golf fandom. And I get to ask a ton of questions about process. I think that is something that's gotten lost in, you know, kind of the, the later in my career is like, I just haven't been able to ask enough questions of other players about how they're doing something. Um, there's just, you know, there's very, there's not really enough time unless it's somebody that you're really close with. So I get to satisfy that curiosity, which is great for both a writing perspective and also a playing perspective. I mean, certainly Will, telling Willie Wilcox's story was really 
uh, important to me. I mean, it was really important to Willie. Uh, I think I, I think at the time it really helped him a lot. Um, and I hope, I hope it's still, he still considers it a cathartic experience for him. That was, that was an important story I think to tell. Uh, and he's, he seems to be doing really well. And I talked to him uh, yesterday morning and, and he just, he's at the U S open now caddying for Ben Carr yeah. and, and other, other players are interested in having him caddy for him. And meanwhile, he's hitting exceptional shots and, and playing well, you know, so um, I, I hope, I hope he's continued to make progress. I think he has. Um, so that, you know, that was important. And I have some, I have some other stories in the works right now that uh, I'm really enjoying writing. Uh, I don't know when I'll release them. I want to get them right, but we've got some exciting, we've got some exciting work ahead at Monday Q info. And, uh, and, you know, Ryan is just such an exceptional human being and he's so selfless. Uh, that's the amazing thing is, is being a part of his ride and his journey is he gets so many opportunities to help. Um, or, or I should say he's got so many people offering to help, willing to help, and all that help gets passed on to players. All that help gets passed on to other people in need. He never takes anything for himself. Uh, and that is, it goes, it goes against kind of every instinct that most of us have because at some point, you know, you need to, you need to do right by yourself for all the work you're putting in. And he just does everything he can to, to be as helpful and selfless as possible. And um, I'm, I'm just very fortunate to have a a great friend and and partner in him uh, to kind of help me, to mentor me and to be a part of that journey. He's a good man. He really is. I, I consider myself lucky that, uh, you know, consider him a friend. He's a really, really good human being. Um, you know, they don't make any better than Ryan. Agree with you. And Willie. I've gotten to be close to Willie, too. And I, he is doing well, I think. And, you know, it's he is a good soul, right? Willie's a good soul. Um, you know, I'm glad he's doing well. You know, it's, I'm sure it's a journey that you and I can't imagine what he's been on and what that takes to keep life moving in the right direction. But it seems like he's he's doing pretty good. So... I'm proud of him. He's a, he's a good man as well. Uh, last one I got, I always ask, I'm a golf course architect geek, so I always have to ask you, you've played all over the world. Give me your two or three best golf courses and what makes the architecture of those golf courses, you know, fantastic or in your list. Mm. Um, man, I, I mean, I love Donald Ross golf courses. There's so many of them all over New England in the Northeast. I grew up in New Hampshire. A lot in Massachusetts. Um, the Boston Golf Club is a spectacular course. Uh, I don't think that's a that's a Ross, but what do I what do I what are my top courses? I guess I just haven't really thought about that in a while. Uh, I mean, I you love just wake up every day and, some, and play it right, like just I that love, enjoyable of an experience. I love Southern. Thing. I love Southern Highlands in Las Vegas. It's a uh, that's a Robert Trent Jones Jr. and Senior course. That pl- I think that place is so much fun to play and waking up every there's so much variety. It's it can be really difficult. It can be really scorable. There's just, there's a ton of diversity in the greens and there's some little slender areas that are impossible to get to and there's some big fat areas that just funnel the the, 
ball to the hole. It, they play the collegiate uh, masters there. It, it's an exceptionally fun golf course. So that's up there. I mean, Shadow Creek, another one in Vegas that I absolutely love. You know, Spyglass is really hard, really fun, has kind of all of those those early ocean holes that are picturesque. And then the holes through the back nine that winds through the trees that can punch you in the mouth. Um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to play Pine Valley a few times. Unfortunately, the summer that I played it, it wasn't, it had been a difficult summer, so we didn't get it in top shape, but it was, um, you know, it, it was uh, architectural marvel. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd put all of those right at the top. Yeah, I heard, I've never played Pine Valley. I've heard architecturally, it's just amazing. Like it's that, there's a reason it's one, two or three in the world rankings, everyone who has it, right? Like it's, it should be there. It's that good. Yeah. Yeah. The bunk, the bunkering is really unique and, um, just perfectly positioned frames, a lot of holes. And then you also have the tree lines and, um, it just, it feels, you know, it can feel like a video game. Yeah. I mean, those, those places. And, and then I'll, I'll plug my, my home course here, which is a Trent Jones junior course, La Senda's golf club in Phoenix. And, uh, the more I play that, the more, I mean, it's, it's, there's so much character and it's really difficult and it's just a lot of fun to play day in, day out. Well, pro thank you for your time today. This has been a fascinating conversation. I've really, truly enjoyed it. You know, congrats again on the win and you know, that momentum that that builds. So going to be, you know, watching you going forward. And, um, like I said, there's so much interesting things going on in golf right now. It's, it's, uh, it's very cool to have your perspective. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for inviting me, Jason. Uh, very, very kind of you and a lot of fun to speak. Keep, hey, keep rolling with everything you guys are doing at Sub-70. The, the equipment is beautiful and, um, you know, the culture that you guys are building there from the outside looking in, the, just the accessibility, it's all really encouraging. So I'm, you know, I'm a Callaway guy at the moment, but I'm cheering you on. Well, I appreciate it. It means a lot coming from you, Pro. It really does. Thank you so much.